Amen. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you, uh, by your spirit, would, would bring both conviction of our sin, but also conviction of your mercy and your grace and your compassion toward us, how you, uh, you, you long to forgive and how you long to make us uh, righteous, that which you actually require of us. I pray for myself that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things, amen and amen. Yeah, after having preached this morning once, I can definitely tell you that preaching about stealing is a lot less awkward than preaching about sex. So that's the good news. Um, but we do have to preach. We're looking at the eighth commandment this morning, you shall not steal. And so one question I have for you, this ask you, have you ever been robbed? I mean, just flat out robbed. Like when Judy and I moved to Seattle in 1997, we lived in Capitol Hill. And one night about four in the morning, Judy heard something downstairs and someone had broken into our house while we were there. And so when the, when the person saw Judy, because she's like so mean and buff, I guess, they took off running. And, but, you know, and all they took was a jacket and our blender, right? But nonetheless, it's sort of unsettling, right? You think, wow, I did you... It, makes you feel violated, does it not? I mean, has that ever happened to you? I mean, it's for that, I called my sister who's a police officer and she said, you know, you need to get a dog. You know, 99% of those kind of crimes are, are resolved by just having any kind of dog in the house. So that's what we have, any kind of dog right now. <laughs> and, and we haven't been broken into since we got him. Uh, on the other hand, now that our kids are out of the house, we're, we've determined that after any kind of dog is no longer around. We might just go with the security system. Um, but nonetheless, um, if you've never been robbed, or at least if you don't think you've been robbed, um, I've got news for you. At least if you live in the United States, you not only have been robbed, but you are getting robbed on a daily basis. I mean robbed blind. I, I told Judy several times this week that this, in some sense, this sermon has been one of the most overwhelming to study for. Because when you begin to think about the issue of stealing and the issue of theft and the issue of fraud and all these kind of things, it becomes overwhelming. You begin to realize how much of our lives revolve around guarding against other people taking our stuff. So for example, let me give you some statistics I looked up. This is from the Bureau of Justice Statistics, which I think is bureauofjustice.gov. So this is 2014. In 2014, there were 17.6 million cases of identity theft reported. And they, they don't even know how many were unreported, but most of them actually apparently go unreported. A lot of them do. In 2013, I saw this on, on 60 Minutes when I was in Baltimore with my friend. I couldn't believe it, so I looked it up. In 2013, the IRS paid out $5.8 billion in fraudulent tax claims. In other words, people go and they, they'll buy social security numbers off of some street corner and they go home and they just will do 10 or 15 tax returns a day and they, they do it for 1000 or $2,000, just under what will get them audited. And, and they did that to the tune of almost $6 billion in 2013. This year, they're actually projecting that it'll be $21 billion. That's people literally just stealing from the government. That's mind-blowing to me. Until you look at things like Medicare. Last year, there was $60 billion of fraud 
detected in the Medicare system. Medicare pays out about $604 billion a year. And so that's 10% of the system is just fraud. Now, by the way, that, a lot of that fraud is, is perpetrated by people with a lot of education. So it's not just people who are, it's not sort of the, the down and out who are stealing. It's the up and out who are also stealing. Um, $80 billion was paid out in insurance fraud last year. It's just people filing false claims. And the thing that was interesting to me is in the past five years, the, this is according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, 10 million people have been caught for shoplifting in the past five years. That sounds like a lot of people, doesn't it? it? It does until you read the next statistics where they estimate that they only catch one in every 48 people. In other words, that's a lot of fraud going on. That's a lot of theft, a lot of stealing that's going on. And so does the Eighth Commandment have any relevance for our lives? I, I think so. I mean, it says pretty simply, you shall not steal, and yet it touches every part of our lives. So we're going to look at three things this morning. The three things we're going to look at, basically, when you look at the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. Before you talk about stealing, you've got to establish sort of ownership. In other words, the, the Eighth Commandment presupposes that someone owns something, that, that, or, or, or that, some, that there's some kind of personal property that one person has that another person could take, and it would be wrong for that person to take it, or something, right? So, so you have to establish the whole idea of ownership on one hand. And once you establish ownership, then you can determine what theft is. And finally, after you look at theft, as we've looked at the Ten Commandments, there's two principles, really big ones, that we keep coming back to. The principle of cups, which means the law is just as important for the inside as it is for the outside, and the principles of coins. And so where one thing is, is forbidden in the law, the opposite is demanded. And so if stealing is forbidden, what is the opposite of stealing? Well, the opposite of, of stealing or taking is actually take generosity or giving. And so that's what we'll look at by the end of the sermon this morning. And so with that said, let's look at the whole idea of ownership. So if I tell you that the ownership is presupposed, the question is who owns what? Do you own the stuff that you have or does someone else own it? At least according to the Bible. You see in the Bible, this thread that goes through the whole Bible basically says this, is that God owns everything and that you and I are stewards of it. So for example, when God was calling Israel right before he gave them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19, verse 5, he says to Israel, he says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Everything. Psalm 24 says the same thing. God owns everything. If you think about um, the Garden of Eden, when Adam was placed in the Garden of Eden, God didn't place Adam in the Garden of Eden and then just sign a deed over to him. He didn't say, Adam, I'm going to place you in the Garden. All this stuff is yours. Don't, you, you can do with it whatever you want. It says he put him in the Garden to work it and to keep it. In other words, Adam's job was to, to work in God's Garden to work it and to keep it. Now, was the Garden of Eden a pleasurable place? I imagine it was. In, in other words, God gave Adam stuff... He gave him a place to live. He gave him a job to do. He gave him all this stuff. And while God owned it, Adam got to enjoy it. So, so in other words, there's a sense in which nowhere in the Bible does it say it's a sin to be rich. Nowhere. In, in fact, the, what the Bible doesn't say it's a sin to be rich. It says that, that money, the love of money is the root of all evils. In other words, there's a lot of warnings for wealthy people, like James. Read the book of James. 
that on one hand, on the other hand, it's not a sin to enjoy the things God has given you, but are you enjoying it as a steward or are you enjoying it as someone who's the owner? In other words, if you look through all of Scripture, God owns everything. And so everything that you and I have, we are actually just stewards of, or managers might be a more modern term. So God has entrusted to you and me a bunch of stuff and says, now you manage it on my behalf. Now, what do, what do I mean by that? You know, when I was in college, I worked for a, a very fancy restaurant called the Olive Garden. And as a waiter at the Olive Garden, and, you know, there were, I have, it was one of the most fun times of my life. And I remember we had this, this manager named Steve, and he was one of these kind of guys who was always spazzing about everything. He's running up and down the alley, alley, and he would always yell, it seemed like every Friday night, you people are killing me! You're killing me with the food costs. The food costs is 32% and it needs to be 29, blah, blah, blah. He would just, but he was constantly, but he would always say, mine. You're killing my, my food costs. You, you, you people are basically stealing from me. Now, did he really mean that? He didn't mean that. I mean, ultimately, it was the corporation that was worried about the food costs. But Steve knew that he was going to have to answer for those food costs. In other words, the corporation said, Steve, here's a restaurant. Manage it on our behalf. And we will check back to see whether or not you've been profitable or not. Have you, have you utilized the resources we gave you to actually increase our presence? It's the exact same way that's, that works in our own lives with the stuff that God has given to us. So on one hand, you could say, you know, my house, my car, my this, my that, on one hand. On the other hand, really what you mean, I hope, is that God has entrusted me with this house. God has entrusted me with this money. He's entrusted me with this car, with this truck. And, and everyone, you've heard the story. If you've been here, last year was my 10th anniversary here. And if you've been here, you've probably heard this story at least 10 times. Right? When I was in college, you know it's coming. When I was in college, right before I went into college, I got out of the army and I bought myself my dream truck. Right? It, it was all I could afford. It was $8,000. This Toyota truck, this little tiny, it was you know, one of the small trucks only two people could fit up front. And the very worst possible vehicle you can have when you go to a large state university is a small pickup truck. Because students are moving every single week, one place or the other. And everyone asks you, Tommy, can I borrow your truck? And when I first got to college, I'd be like, yeah, I don't know. And you don't want to be a jerk. And so you say, well, when do you need me to be there? And so I would always accompany my truck and sort of oversee my truck to make sure no one dented it and make sure that no one did anything harmful to my truck. And at some point in there, I was, I was genuinely blessed. I was at a church and we did a study on finances. And I got this idea that God owns everything and that I'm just a steward. This isn't my truck anymore. It's God's truck. And I, I can tell you right now, that was one of the most freeing moments in my life. Because people would come and say, Tommy, can I borrow your truck? And I'd say, it's not my truck, it's God's truck. And they said, really? I said, yep. I, and by the way, I can't come with you to move your house again. And by the way, God likes it when you fill his truck up back, up when you bring it back. <laughs> but it's God's truck, not mine. And you know, by the end of college, that truck was dented, beat up, just it looked horrible. But I would rather have a horrible-looking truck and be a free man than, than have a beautiful-looking truck and be constantly obsessed with it. At least that's the decision I came to. That's, that's the conclusion I came to. So you and I are actually stewards of the things God has given us. And we're stewards of it to the end that we actually are to use these things to actually uh, increase the family business, if you will. 
In other words, to, to, to glorify, to spread his kingdom. So ask yourself this, if you're a note taker, you know, write things down. How am I using my house in order to see the kingdom of God expanded in the world? How am I using my cars? How am I using my bank accounts? How am I using, I mean, even if you have nice stuff, maybe you have a boat. How am I using my boat? Maybe you're taking your neighbors out. I don't know. How are you using your stuff as a steward in order to, to see God's kingdom expanded? So once you establish the fact that God owns everything and that you and I are stewards of it, then you can start to talk about theft, right? The fact that the people, if someone steals it from us, what does that mean for us? Well, in some sense, we're still responsible for it. On the other hand, now they're responsible. And so let's look at the issue of theft. When you look at the Bible, basically theft and stealing can be put in two categories of robbing two different individuals. And on one hand, theft has to do with robbing your neighbor or robbing maybe some, someone you don't know. I'm using neighbor in a generic term here. Other people. You're, in other words, you're taking things that don't belong to you from them. And so on one hand, Luther, here's Luther's definition. He basically said stealing is acquiring any property by unjust means. So that could be any way. And I, had, I have a short list here. It only has 22 things um, of ways that you might be guilty of theft. And it goes, let me, I'll just read through them real quickly. Burglary, robbery, larceny, hijacking, kidnapping, shoplifting, pickpocketing, purse snatching, embezzlement, extortion, racketeering, cheating on taxes, government stealing from future citizens, uh, stealing by not putting in a full day's work. Uh, employers steal by taking more hours than they're allowed by contract. Price gouging, marketing by false advertising, exaggerating the value of a product. Insurance fraud, false claims, theft of intellectual property, plagiarism, identity theft, playing the lottery, not giving to the needy. So you see the list is pretty long. And that's the, sort of the tip of the iceberg. Even, it's, it's even stealing when it doesn't seem like it hurts anybody. Because right? that's the common argument you hear with regard to things like uh, downloading software and things or software piracy. It's like, yeah, it isn't hurting anybody. Whether it hurts someone or not, the, that isn't the issue. The question is, is how does God view it? Does he view it as, as theft or not? And really, at the end of the day, you never know what hurts somebody and what doesn't. Right? So you think of plagiarism. How does that hurt anybody? You know, I lost a year of my life to the issue of plagiarism. Most people probably don't know that. It wasn't because I was the plagiarizer. I was actually working at Eli Lilly, and I got a call one day. I was driving through Auburn. And someone said, hey, Tommy, do you know this guy named Mark X? Let's say his name is. And I said, never heard of him. And, and, and the person on the phone from Georgia said, well, he says, he's your best friend. And I said, well, I never heard of him. And he said, well, he, he's preached 90 of your sermons word for word, including all the stories about your kids, including Ranger stories. And he says that you gave them to him. I said, never heard of him. That, so that was fine. I thought it was over until I got a call back. And they said, he said that, he gave, that you stole them all from him. I ended up spending a, a year, I had a plane ticket at one time to go to Austin, Texas, where I had, was going to have to go testify in order to clear my own name. And you think, well, plagiarism, what, what's not a big deal? It, it, it all ultimately could be a big deal. So the first issue of theft is, on one hand, it's, it's taking anything that doesn't belong to you or me. So the second issue, and this one actually gets a little bit bigger, so you can rob your neighbor, but what the Bible also talks about is robbing God. Anytime God has not given his due, 
We're, we, are, we have robbed God, which, by the way, if any time God is not given his due, we have robbed God means that any time we commit any sin, we are guilty also of the Eighth Commandment. If you've been sitting through the series, you've realized that one thing that, that is pretty clear is that every sin we commit, in some way or another, it seems to go back to violating every other one of the Ten Commandments. It makes sin pretty simple, to be, <laughs> to be, to be blunt. So on one hand, robbing God, let me read to you what God says to Israel in Malachi. And it's interesting to me because Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And basically the context is this, is Israel has sort of, God, God has brought them back and they've tried to sort of revitalize Israel and rebuild and all of these kind of things. And it's all just sort of petered out. And nothing's happening. And people are wondering, God, where are you in all this? You know, what are you going to do? Are you ever going to send the Messiah? He hasn't come. All of these kinds of things. And so the, one of the last things that God says to Israel before he shuts the door in the Old Testament, he says this to them. Let me read to you. It's Malachi verse three, or chapter 3, verse 8. He says, well, man rob God. He says, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? And God answers, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Therefore, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So God's, God's answer, that one of his last words in the Old Testament, he talks about tithing. Now, why would he do that? Remember, sort of nothing is happening in Israel, or they're wondering why anything is happening. Well, maybe the reason nothing's happening is because they don't have a lot of faith that anything is going to happen. And maybe the, re the way that God knows they don't have a lot of faith that nothing is, is going to happen is because they don't give. In fact, they don't tithe. He's, he said tithe. Bring your, for them, it would have been agricultural. Bring your whole tithe into the storehouse. And the purpose of the tithe was to actually see God's kingdom expanded. It was to see God's kingdom expanded through the priesthood and, and taking care of the priests, but also through showing justice to the poor and taking care of the outcast. And so they, if, I'm assuming if they weren't tithing as they were supposed to, that those things also weren't happening. But the reason that they weren't tithing is the same reason, frankly, that we don't tithe. is because we're also breakers of the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh commandments. Remember I've told you when we did the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, that every other commandment can be used as a metric or a measuring stick for how we believe the first commandment. And so the question is, is how, what does your giving say about how much or how little you trust God to provide for you, basically? You remember that the opposite of the command is, it, it, one part, it, the, the negative is to steal, the positive is actually giving. And so the question is, is what is your giving like? Now the question that often comes up with, in church is, is the tithe still valid for today, right? You're talking about giving. Is the tithe still valid? And, and the answer is, yeah, sort of. In other words, is the, are we in the Old Testament era? No, the, does the New Testament say you have to tithe? It doesn't, although, although Jesus does tell the Pharisees, he says, you've given a tithe of your mint and your cumin. He said, you should have done that, but you should have also taken care of the poor. You see, the principle in the New Testament is everything gets bigger and more expansive. And so if in the Old Testament, God expected us to give 10%, in the New Testament, it, that's probably a starting point for us. And so the question is, is are you there with that? And the answer is, I'm, I can only guess, is no. 
If you look at any statistics, only about 4% of, of people who call themselves Christians actually tithe. If they did, it would, tra- it would change the world for the better, probably. But we don't. So the question is, how do you get there? And, and by the way, if, you, if you're not a member here, or you're thinking, wow, this guy's just talking about money. He wants us to give to his church. I do want you to give to our church on one hand. On the other hand, I'm more concerned with whether or not you're actually becoming more and more generous. So if you, if you resolve today that I want to go out and give 10%, if you give it to somebody, the question is, are you trusting God with your finances rather than hoarding it? You see, oftentimes we think it's, especially in America, and you often read economists here, we used to be a generation of savers and now we're a generation of spenders. It's better to be the one than the other, I think. But there's a point you get where you become a hoarder. And by the way, as someone who, be, who becomes a hoarder of money or anything else, you eventually become a thief. Because the extent you're not using those things for the glory of God, we're guilty of violating the Eighth Commandment. And so how do we, what, is, what do we do now? Because if you're like me, this was a pretty like, overwhelming, convicting sermon on a number of levels. What do I do? Right? I'm a thief because I rob God. I'm a thief because I rob my neighbor. I'm a thief because I'm just a thief. Well, the answer is to consider what the Bible says about generosity. And not our generosity per se, but the generosity ultimately of Jesus. If you understand the, the generosity of Jesus, it changes everything. You see, if you ever listen to prosperity, people preach prosperity gospel on television. You know what they basically say is this, that if you give, God will bless you. Have you ever heard anyone say that? If you plant a faith seed, that God will do something for you. Well, I'm going to tell you in a minute that the Christian gospel, the real gospel, says the exact opposite. In other words, the gospel doesn't say if you give, God will uh, ultimately bless you. What the Christian gospel says is because God has blessed you, you give. Because God has given you everything, now you are free to give as well. So let's look finally at the issue of generosity. When you consider the issue of generosity, I love what Paul says in the book of Ephesians. He's basically talked to them about this thing called the gospel, and then he starts to, to list things applications of the gospel in the lives of the Ephesians and what he specifically says about this commandment in verse 28 of Ephesians chapter 4 he says let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need so let me me put that in a more pithy way for you Paul says the burglar needs to become the benefactor let the one who used to be a burglar now let him work so that he can become a benefactor. Let, let the one who used to steal and take things from other people actually work so that he can actually give and take care of other people. Now, how does that happen? Does someone go from being a burglar to a benefactor because they look and said, that guy really sets a good example for me? I don't think so. The only way the burglar becomes a benefactor is if something fundamental in his heart changes, and the only thing that can change our hearts like that is the gospel of Jesus. And the gospel of Jesus says that Jesus went to the cross between two thieves in order to accomplish something for us. Let me read to you from Matthew. Matthew 27, verse 35 says this. It says, And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is the king of the Jews, Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you were the son of God, come down from the cross. 
And so also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. Verse 43, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And verse 44, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So think about the irony, especially in the context of the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. So Jesus is the, the, the perfect one, the, the righteous one, the one who completely and utterly obeyed the eighth commandment. Not only did Jesus never steal from his neighbor, but he never robbed God either. And not only did he not rob God, but he was completely and utterly generous. Remember we talked about Acts chapter 9, Jesus went around doing good. And so you have one who is perfectly and utterly pure and righteous, crucified between two thieves. Why is that the case? Well, the answer is pretty simple, is that the one who is the righteous one in the middle, the one who is crucified between two thieves, would become the thief so that the two on the outside could become the righteous. That's it. If you want to know what the gospel of Jesus is, it's that the Jesus becomes the thief so that the thief can become righteous. Jesus becomes the adulterer so that the adulterer can become righteous. Jesus becomes the liar so that the liar can become righteous. And because Jesus has done this for you, you are now free to be generous as he is. You don't have to worry about whether or not God is for you because you look at the cross and you say that the one in the middle became what I am so I could become what he is. And what he is is utterly and completely righteous. And so the way God sees you right now, if you're a Christian is he doesn't look at you and see the thief. He doesn't look at you and see the one who's guilty because he or she, you haven't tithed or you haven't given, you haven't done. He looks at you and sees you as utterly and completely righteous. And knowing that, it frees you up to obey the eighth commandment. Remember how the commandments start. I am the Lord your God who delivered you from the land of Egypt. They start with grace and then they say, now here's what it's like to live. So the first question you have to ask, if you want to be free, if you want to be free financially in any other way, ask yourself, have I trusted Jesus? Your life doesn't have to, you don't have to treat your stuff, you don't have to be, live like you live in a monkey trap. There was a story of the monkey trap. I, I, I'd always heard about this, and then finally I looked it up on YouTube, and everything is on YouTube. I'm serious. I think everything in the world is literally on YouTube now. And so I want to know, this, I, you, you've heard about a monkey trap, how villagers in Africa catch monkeys sometimes or baboons? I didn't believe it until I found one on YouTube and saw the guy do it. It's crazy. Basically, they find a bunch of baboons, and they'll be near a termite mound, and they'll go and they'll hollow out part of the termite mound, and they'll make it bigger on the inside than the, than the entrance is, and they'll put a piece of fruit or nuts or coconut in there, and then they'll just go back and sit by a tree and wait. And what happens is a baboon will get curious, and he'll walk up, and he puts his hand in the hole, and he grabs onto the nuts, and then the villager just walks right up to the baboon and conks him on the head. Done. And you would think, why does the baboon just run? Well, the baboon could run, but he can't get his hand out of the hole because he refuses to give up the coconuts he's holding on to. In other words, one recipe for dying is to hold on to your stuff like it's the only thing that matters. One, one recipe for, for spending your life eternally separated from God is hold on to your stuff like it's the only thing that matters. What the gospel says is you can let go of that stuff because Jesus has purchased everything for you. And the question is, how is that going to affect you as you leave here? You know, some of you are going to leave here, and, and I don't want you to leave here saying, well, you know, I, don't, I can't even afford to tithe now. You know, so I'm just going to, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to trust Jesus is going to forgive me someday. 
You know, if you can't, if you can't give 10%, maybe you give nine, maybe you give eight, maybe you give seven, maybe you give one In other words, are you and I becoming more and more generous is the question. And because, the, because of what Jesus has done for us, the eighth commandment says you shall not steal, but it also ultimately says you shall be generous. And we can be generous because Jesus has been. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray this morning that as we consider the issue of stealing, the issue of, of generosity, that in fact you would make us more and more generous. I've often prayed that for our congregation, and this is a very generous congregation. And so I pray that more and more we would be generous so that we might bless those around us as well. In Jesus' name we pray these things, amen and amen.